Right? How do you end an email? Just think of it like that. Have you ever thought about that? What is the best, what is the best signature sign-off that you use? Now, this is actually, this is actually a debate. Among the, among the business consultants and the etiquette professionals, yes, that's a thing, an etiquette professional, right? Among, the, among these people, there is, actually, there is actually quite a debate as to what is the best, most effective signature sign-off. For example, listen, listen to some of these. There is, of course, the, the classic formal edding, ending, sincerely, sincerely yours, yours truly, very truly yours, or just simply yours. Right? Then there is the, the whole category of best. Have you ever seen that, right? You know, right before your name, best. My best. My best to you. All the best. Best wishes. Best regards. Which leads to the whole regards category, right? Warm regards warmest regards, which just bleeds into warmest, warmly, never use coolly. <laughs> then, there are the, then there are the appreciation sign-offs, right? Thank you, thanks, many thanks, or to save yourself three keystrokes, THX. And then there are the ones that try to use some sort of a famous saying to show your sort of cultural uh, uh, you know, your, your cultural coolness. All right, let me, let, let's do it like this. I'll, I'll say it, you just kind of think, okay, what is, it, what is it referring to, right? Live long and prosper? Right, to infinity and beyond. Right, uh, may the odds ever be in your favor. May the force be with you, that's too easy. Right, the point is this, this is what the business consultants will tell you. How you end a piece of communication matters. Right? Because you've invested time into it. You've invested time into, into crafting content that you want people to hear, you want them to understand, you want them to act on. Right? And, and so you, you've laid out the principles, you've challenged, you've encouraged, you've explained next steps, and you want to summarize it and then sign off. And you want to do it in a way that people remember what you said and are encouraged to act on it. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's written this letter to the Thessalonians. He's laid out principles. He's challenged. He's encouraged. And here's how he wraps it up. Here's how he, here's how he wants to summarize it. This is his sign-off. There's nothing fancy here. Just four ways to conclude that he goes through it. Four ways to conclude in these verses. Right? First, first, he gives a prayer. Second, he gives an assurance. Third, he gives some instructions. And fourth and finally, he gives a blessing. A prayer, an assurance, some instructions, and a blessing. Let's look at all of them. First, the prayer. Look at verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this, this sounds like Paul is talking about God, not really to God. But what Paul is doing here is he's summarizing a prayer. He's summarizing how he is praying for the Thessalonians. Now, some of the scholars go through the discussion of the, the Greek construction and the word choice and how they match what Paul would typically use when he introduces a, a, a prayer. Right? I'll, I'll spare you the detailed justification, but this is Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. Now, I regularly ask people, probably more than, more, I probably should do it more just personally, but in, in professional kind of capacities, right? how can I pray for you? And people, in return, often will ask me, whether it's in individual conversations or in a, a larger community group kind of setting, is, you know, how can I pray for you? And, and I don't think I've ever heard someone say, and I'm pretty sure I've never said, yeah, th thanks for asking. You know, what I want you, could you pray 
that the God of peace would sanctify me through and through, that I would be kept blameless. My whole spirit, soul, and body would be kept blameless until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And yet, that's how Paul chooses to summarize how he's praying for the members of this church. Now, what's he talking about? Paul's asking that God would sanctify them. Sanctify. Now, that's a religious-sounding word, but it simply means to become more and more like Jesus, right? to grow in moral purity, to be increasingly restored to your original design as an image-bearer of the God of the universe. And Paul already told them back in chapter 4, which we looked at in July, that God's will for them is to be sanctified. Right? This is God's will for you to be sanctified. And put very simply, it means that the things that Paul has been instructing them to do, particularly in the, the, the second part of this letter, the things that he's been instructing them to do, they should do. And they should do it with an increasing desire to do them. And they should do it with an increasing desire to bring God glory in doing them. Now, what kind of things? Oh, these are the things that we've been, been looking at this summer and the things that he outlines in, the, in this letter. He, he's telling them, I, I want you to avoid sexual immorality. I want you to love one another. I want you to work hard to take care of yourself so that you have the ability then to take care of others. I want you to live with an expectation of Jesus' return without falling into idle speculation as to when exactly that's going to be. Or just last week. Right? We see verses 16, 17, and 18. What's God's will for us? He says it. You don't have to guess. What's God's will? It's not mysterious. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's God's will. That's what God wants. That's what Paul prays. God, make, increasing, make them increasingly like that. Sanctify them. Now, how much sanctification is he talking about? Right? That's the classic question, isn't it? How holy must I be, really? Right? The, the prayer of every ornery child is the same honest prayer of, of every adult. Right? God, make me good, but not too much and not too soon. Which, of course, just simply betrays a misunderstanding of what sanctification is, about what God really wants for us, that he's for us in all of this, that our sanctification is actually the best thing for us. It betrays when we pray like that or when we think like that, that we don't really understand that God is on our side when he commands us, when he tells us and encourages us to do these things. Right? How does Billy Joel put it? Right? I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Why? Because the sinners are much more fun. That's the basis of why it is. Why, why would I do that? Well, because the sinners are much more fun. Now, we can challenge, I think we should, if I were in a conversation with Mr. Joel, I'd, I'd, converse, I'd, I'd challenge, I think, the, the premise that there is anything sustainably fun about sin. There isn't. It's, and it's also possible that he's, quite frankly, hanging around with the wrong saints. I've met many people who would claim to be that I don't really want to hang around either. But the point is, we are created in, by God in God's image for a life of eternal meaning and eternal significance. So God knows that we're best. He knows that we're most joyful. He knows that we're most satisfied when we are increasingly reflecting our design. And so when Paul prays this prayer, he wants the best for the Thessalonians, right? And so he's asking that God would sanctify them through and through, which just means entirely, completely. And then he said, is it a different way for emphasis? May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's, not, he's not making some definitive philosophical statement that a person is divided into three parts or anything like that. He's just simply using the phrase to refer to the entirety of human personality. 
He's saying, I want you to be sanctified through and through, that you would keep, that you would be kept blameless. Now, the concern here, that's the prayer. The concern here, despite the fact that God is praying that God would do this, Paul is praying that God would do this, the concern is that we can often hear a prayer like that, and it becomes overwhelming. It, it can fill us with stress because we assume that the burden for that prayer being answered really rests on us. In other words, we assume that, the, that our sanctification is ultimately based upon our own effort. Now, our own effort is involved, don't get me wrong, but it's not the ultimate cause. It's not the ultimate ground. We can claim even in our effort, even in our striving to do the things that, that, that God commands us to do, even in that, we can claim no credit for it, which is why Paul offers, number one, a prayer, but then secondly, he offers, number two, an assurance. Look at verse 24. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. What Paul prays for in verse 23 is impossible in our own effort. So he gives them verse 24. Because without this assurance of verse 24, sanctification can be overwhelming. Right? What does God want? Perfection. When does he want it? Now. Where does he want it? Everywhere. So we look at the standard. We look at ourselves. We see the difference. And we throw up our hands in despair. Unless... Unless the ground of our being sanctified, the basis for our progressively turning from ourselves and turning to God and being transformed into his image, unless the ground for our sanctification is the faithfulness of God to his promises. You may have heard of Augustine, Aurelius Augustine, brilliant philosopher around 400 AD, right? And, and Augustine was converted to Christianity and, and, and converted out of a somewhat unsanctified lifestyle. Right, to put it delicately. Let's just say he would have had some trouble with the first part of chapter 4 in Paul's letter here. And talk about the prayer of an ordinary child, right? Augustine was the young man who famously quipped in a, in a prayer to God, God, make me chaste, make me sexually pure, but not yet. And yet it was this Augustine who knew as he became a follower of Jesus that rather than freeing him like he thought it would, his sin, rather than freeing him, actually had enslaved him. And there was no way that he'd be able to break out of the jail on his own. Which is why one of his other most famous prayers is, Lord, command what thou dost will, and will what thou dost command. Command what thou dost will, and will what thou dost command. I don't know why I default to Old English. He wrote it in Latin. But right, command what you want, and then give me the want to do what you command. See, in other words, Augustine is saying, God, you have every right to command me to do whatever you want because your will is perfect and it is loving. But God, I am weak. And so as you command me to do whatever you want, give me the want to do whatever you command. And Augustine could pray that with confidence because that's what the Bible assures us God will do. Paul would later write to the Philippian church that he had confidence that the God who began a good work in them, the, the one who began the good work, will carry it on to completion in Christ. And here's the basis for that. When God, when God calls you to do something, he supplies what is needed for the trip. Right? Otherwise, it's hopeless. It's like NASA telling Neil Armstrong to go walk on the moon but not giving him a rocket ship or a spacesuit. 
Right? The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So Paul concludes with one, a prayer that we would be sanctified, with two, an assurance that God is the guarantor of that sanctification. And then he goes and gives three, a few instructions. Now, I won't linger too long on some of these points because they're things that we've already talked about. Paul's already discussed them at, at length in 1 Thessalonians. So, so we've already discussed them this summer, but, but there, are, there are some instructions. There are three instructions that he gives here. Right, first, verse 25, he says, Brothers, pray for us. Now, it was common for Paul to ask for, for prayer as he, as he closed his letters, as he finished his letters. It was common to ask the people that he was writing to, pray for me, pray for us. And there's nothing specific that he's asking them to pray for here. It could be his missionary work, could be for uh, safety in the midst of uh, suffering and, and, and persecution, but whatever, whatever he might have had in mind, we know that the readers wouldn't have been left without any idea about what Paul wanted them to pray because he had just finished telling them what he was going to be praying for them. That's the first thing he says, pray for us. Now, second thing he says, verse 26, greet all God's people with a holy kiss. Now, in case you're wondering, this is not an isolated instruction. And Paul says the same thing to the Romans. He says the same thing to the Corinthians. Peter says the, first, uh, says the same thing in, in his first letter. Right, well, we have, so, but let's, make, let's understand what this, what this would have meant, what, the, what this kiss would have been understood to mean in, the, in this culture. Now, there is, of course, a romantic sense of, of kissing, but that's not the way that the word is used here. Right? No, the, the kiss that that here is the kind that was used in the ancient world to, to show love, to, to, to show love between family members, b between, between deep, close friends, right? usually on the forehead or on the cheek, right? often, often at formal occasions right? where, where you had some sort of contract or, or binding arrangement being made, or, or, or perhaps when, a, when a, recon, a, a relationship was being reconciled. Right? So it was, a, it was a common thing. What Paul is saying is to take this common thing, the kiss, and make it holy. Take the common and give it some greater purpose. Right? The greater purpose being to show the unity among God's people. I want you to take that cultural sign of connection with one another, and I want you to give it a sanctified meaning. I want you to give it a holy meaning. I want you to use it to show the deep unity that the people of God have with one another. And this would have been radical in a socially and ethnically diverse Christian community. Right? A community that would have included slaves, free men, and masters. Would have included Greeks, Romans, Macedonians, Jews. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It was a call to love one another, to be united together in, in mission, to declare that we share an identity that what, is, that what unites us is greater than any, any, any diversity that we might have. That we are unified in our common understanding of our, of, of our need for grace and forgiveness. That we are unified in our hope that God is for us. All right, so that's the second instruction. Right, the third instruction, he says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, one of the commentators points out that this is ex exceedingly strong language. I charge you, he says. He says, I want, he says, I want you to swear that this letter will be read to everyone. Exclude no one. Now, I'm not exactly sure why he would want to emphasize it so, so clearly. Perhaps he was afraid that some people wouldn't hear it. 
that it would be kept by some and not, and, and not told to others. Maybe that, maybe that the masters wouldn't let the slaves hear it. Maybe the, 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 the good people wouldn't hear, let the, the bad people he, hear it. But one thing is sure, he wants the, the letter read, and he wants it read publicly. He wants it declared. In the same way that the Jewish law would have been read in the, in the gathered synagogue, Paul wants his words to be read to the assembled church, which is a pretty bold request if you think about it. It, it hints at Paul's understanding that, that his apostolic writing, under the sovereignty of God and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was to have a similar place and a similar weight to the words of the Jewish scriptures when the people of God gathered. So those are the three instructions. Pray, love, and proclaim. And you don't actually have to do a great deal of imagination to see how these instructions would apply to us as a church, as if they, were, if they were written to us. To sum it all up, what should we do? As Paul brings it all together, what should we do? We should pray for each other. We should pray like Paul prayed for the, the Thessalonians. Pray that we would be sanctified through and through, and do it with a sincerity that shows our unity and our love for each other. Right? Greet each other with a, with a holy kiss, right? This, this is part of, that's part of our membership vows. If, we're, if you're here last week, you're three, we saw three people come and, and, and take their membership vows, be, be, be recognized as new members in the, in the church. Now, whether you, whether you practice the holy kiss culturally in the first century or the holy hug or the faithful fist bump, right, whatever it is you do, it means that we do it to demonstrate our unity one with another in a way that sets us apart from the rest of the world. It means that even when we as a church disagree about strategy of this and that, or we, or we have conflict one, with, with one another, what unites us is, is much, much greater than what divides us. And this is what links all of what Paul is, is saying here, these, these three instructions together, because what, what is it that divides us, that, that, that trumps and puts into small relief anything else? It is the proclamation of the message to everyone, everywhere. Right? Paul warned, wanted his letter read because he believed that it contained the, the hope that everyone needed to hear. He believed that, that his message was equally vital for the good moral person as it was for the immoral. He believed that it was equally essential whether someone's first language was Aramaic or Latin or Greek. Right? That's what we have to do too. Ensure that this message, the hope of Christianity, is proclaimed far and wide and deep. The message, the message that God has promised to restore his image in us, that God has promised to forgive our sins, to fully satisfy our longings and to heal our relationships, and that he has promised to bring us to him on the day that Jesus returns with full assurance that we will be in his presence forever. It is the importance of communicating that message of eternal life, of, of transformative hope, of unshakable joy through Jesus. That is the reason why we do the things that we do. Right? We strive for excellence in our worship service to minimize distractions to the message. We greet visitors and we make them feel welcome so that they would have access to the message. We study the Bible every week systematically in Sunday school so that we would be able to better understand the history, the meaning, and the applicability of the message. We have volunteers who spend time in Sunday school and in junior church teaching our children so that they would have access to the message. We gather in community groups so that the message would have hands and feet 
we host worship services at the Mary Campbell Center so that those who can't get out of their building can still hear the message. We invite our community here on Wednesday nights throughout the school year so that the people in Faith Explored can ask questions and explore the message. So that the children in our community would be exposed to the message. Everything that we do with men, with women, with children, with older adults, and with youth, we sing, we play, we serve, all for the proclamation of the message. That is what unites us, and that is what triumphs over any other difference that we might have. Now, we don't do any of these things perfectly. You may wish there were other things on that list that I read. You may cross some of those things off of your ideal list. And all of them we wish we did better. Because as a church, we too need the prayer of being sanctified through and through. Right? And we need the assurance that the one who commands us to do all these things is actually going to enable us to do it. But we seek we seek one another's best. We do it in unity, all for the sake of the proclamation of the message. Now, the last way Paul concludes, remember there's four ways. Four ways to conclude. He gives a prayer. He offers an assurance. He gives some instructions. And then finally, finally, he gives a blessing. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, like all of Paul's letters, 1 Thessalonians ends with a blessing that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. It's, it's, it's in all of Paul's letters. It's, it's his signature sign-off. This is how Paul goes out. And this statement is the foundation for everything else that he just said. Right? Th think about that. What gives us any hope that our prayers will really be heard? Why should we be in any way confident that we are able to enter into God's presence as sanctified image bearers? What gives us any reason to trust the assurance that God will keep his promises? Where do we get it? How do we know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is not just some sort of formal tagline that Paul's phone settings tags onto the end of every email. This grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is the basis for everything else that he has said. Now remind ourselves, what's grace again? Grace is favor that is not merited and is not deserved. It is a gift of great value given at the great expense of someone else. Now the gift, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gift of great value is our rescue. It's eternal life. It's a perfection that we do not deserve and that we cannot earn. And the great expense is the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are made right because of what Jesus endured for us. When Paul says in, in verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it, he's using language that echoes the promise that the God of salvation will be proclaimed, that the, 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 the salvation of God will be proclaimed and that nothing will stop it. Right? Psalm 22. Go back to Psalm 22 and you look. how Psalm 22 ends by promising that future generations will be told about the Lord and what he has done. It, it says, they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. This is the same psalm, Psalm 22, that begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
The words quoted by Jesus when he was suffering on the cross. The cross, the instrument of suffering and the instrument of grace. Jesus' death, Jesus' experience, it begins with him invoking the suffering of the Psalms, why have you forsaken me? And ends with him invoking the promise at the end of Psalm 22 when he says, it is finished. It has been done. He has done it. Do you see? The assurance that God will complete his good work in you, the assurance that he will do it, is based clearly and solidly on the historical reality that he has done it. Our future hope that he will is based on the historical reality that he has. That's the sign-off. And beware of any sign-off, any foundation that is different than that, that points you to something other than that. One of the most famous signature sign-offs of all time, it's sort of a, a it's, it's history to, to, to many, even maybe most people now, but one of the most, the most famous signature sign-offs in the history is, is, is the way that Walter Cronkite, the, the CBS Evening News announcer, used to end his radio broadcasts every, every night. For, for almost 20 years, from 1962 to 1981, he would end by saying, and that's the way it is. Right, but what's interesting is, that's not what he said the very first night. Right, April 16th, 1962. He actually ended by saying something like this. He said, so that's the news. Be sure to check your local newspapers tomorrow to get all the details on the headlines we're delivering to you. Check the newspapers. Right? The TV executives flipped. Right? Right? Here, is, here is the TV anchorman telling people if they want the real news, go read the newspaper tomorrow morning. So they changed the sign-off. And from that point forward, it was, and that's the way it is. Now, people, even at the time, sort of recognized a little bit of the arrogance of that kind of statement. And yet, at least they were being consistent with themselves. If you wanted the authoritative source, this is where you come. Now, in in the same way, but with a much greater implication and with much greater consequences, Paul is signing off with authority by pointing people to the only true source of knowledge and salvation. It is done, and there is nothing more to say. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you.